Amen. Thank you so much, Drew. Thank you, Danielle. Appreciate that. Take your Bible. Turn to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. We are continuing our work through the first few chapters of Proverbs here in this series, and we've made our way to this chapter. And um, as you take your Bible, you can also notice on the back of your outline, or back of your bulletin, there's an inside of your bulletin, sorry, there's an outline. You should be able to follow along with the message and uh, help you track what's going on here. Proverbs chapter 5. Now, I, I have watched my share of nature documentaries. Uh, I enjoy the, the ones that, uh, where there's uh, the lion chasing the antelope, you know, that kind. That's, that's my favorite kind, where there's a little bit of danger involved. And it's always amazed me that, uh, you know, the, the lion, perhaps in this case, chasing the antelope may be faster, um, but he doesn't always win. And uh, the question is, why is it that the lion, even though he might be faster than the antelope, may not always win the race to catch the antelope? It's because uh, the lion is just running for his next meal. The antelope is running to save his life. And there's a difference there in uh, which do you think is more desperate? Well, probably the antelope. He is more desperate to save his life than the lion is just to get his supper fixed. And so today I would like to use that image to challenge you here in our series, Wisdom from Above, I want to challenge you to consider Proverbs 5, a fight for your life. A fight for your life. Because one of the most effective traps laid for young people is the trap of immorality. The world, the flesh, the devil, all appeals to the weakness of human beings. This is not just a problem with the young, it's a problem for all of mankind, every age category. I want to begin by asking you, you know, what are, what are the stakes here? It seems like immorality, sexual immorality in our culture is ever-present. You might say, what's the big deal, Pastor Marshall? There's nothing we can do about it. It's everywhere. You might as well just get used to it that people are going to fall into this stuff. We must not lose perspective. This is a fight for your life. Before we go to Proverbs 5, I want you to go to Proverbs 6 for a second, and I want you to look at a few verses together, and then we'll come back to our passage for today, because I want to set the tone here that this is a very serious and a very, uh, we must be desperate as we attack and as we fight this sin. Look with me in verse 23, Proverbs 6, 23 through 29. He says, for the commandment is a lamp and the law a light, Reproof of instructions are a way of life to keep you from an evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart. Do not allow, do not, uh, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes to his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. If you look at verse 26 and 27, he says, this is a serious issue. You, if you fall into this trap, you're going to be reduced to a crust of bread, to something that has no nourishment, no value. It is just to be worthless, complete nothingness. You cannot hold on. You cannot, you cannot flirt with this. You cannot gather fire into your chest. You cannot hold on to fire and expect to not be burned. You cannot walk on a fire and not be torched. And, and, and this is important because we need to remember that sexual immorality is not a victimless crime. It, it impacts everyone who participates in it. And it's not just the world out there that has this problem. It's, it's also the church in here. Or immorality has left a wreckage of destruction. It, it's like we come across a shipwreck 
uh, it's been abandoned, and we see the shipwreck here, and, there, and it's, we, come, we see the scattered belongings, we see the lives lost, we see the destruction everywhere, but we have to ask ourselves, what leads to that wreck? What leads to the loss? What leads to the destruction? The passage gives us a warning here in chapter 5. Go back with me to Proverbs 5. We find a warning that you are in the fight for your life, a fight for your life, and you must take seriously the responsibility of handling this appropriately. In fact, a wise person will fight against sexual sin and temptation. Father, we ask you today, you'd help us to have your wisdom as we look at this passage of Scripture, that it would be a a good reminder to us that we live in a fallen world and we desperately need your grace to fight these things. May you give us wisdom as we face the world. May you give us wisdom as we look at your word. May you help us and give us wisdom as we look into our own hearts to see what you are showing us there about our weaknesses, about our sins. Lord, if you bring anything before us today, may we repent. May we be open and honest before you. In Jesus' name, amen first uh, section I want you to see in verses 1 through 6 is the battle against immorality. And if you confront the lies and the lure of immorality, you first need to challenge the person to listen, that is to hear wisdom so they don't fall into that trap of immorality. Like so many of the other passages here, we have the introduction here, and we have the introduction of a father speaking to his son, and he tells him about the folly, the folly, the foolishness of immorality. Verse 1, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding that you may preserve discretion, your lips may keep knowledge. In a moment, he's going to launch into the dangers associated with immorality because you have to understand immorality is always foolish. It's always folly. There's never a time when someone engaged in immorality when afterwards they thought, well, that was a really smart decision. It's always foolish. And if you embrace wisdom, you will stay away from immorality because immorality is folly. It is important for us to remember this. He says, pay attention. Notice the words here, wisdom. Lend your ear to understanding. That is, bow your ear, submit your ear to understanding. All these words of understanding, knowledge, wisdom. Why? He says, so you can preserve discretion and keep knowledge. You need to keep this because your life will possess these things. If you possess these things, you will be able to stay away from these dangers. Now, this is a chapter that deals directly with a seduction of sexual morality, and he begins not with a seduction, but with the call to wisdom. He says, if you're going to face this, you need to be sure to understand that immorality is foolishness. It's the opposite of wisdom. If you have wisdom, if you, uh, if you don't have wisdom, you should be sure you will fall into immorality. Now, the temptation that immorality gives you is that you can cheat the system in some way, that you can have all the pleasures without any of the responsibilities, that you might even fool yourself into thinking that you've outsmarted God. But God tells us in Galatians that be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. There is no way you can outsmart the system. Immorality is always foolish. You may feel like you're being smart, but it is in fact the opposite of that. Next, I want to show you the seduction of immorality in verse 3, because we need this knowledge, we need this wisdom of God, because without it, we will fall into a great snare of an immoral person. Verse 3 says, for, that's an explanation. Word for indicates he's explaining why we need these things. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. Her mouth and her lips are not speaking here of a sexual thing. It's more of her flattery, her speech, and her seduction here is with words, her luring, her temptation. And all kinds of lures are, are work basically the same. There's a hook and there's bait. And with the hook and the bait, you don't see the hook because you've seen the bait. 
I'm not really a fisherman. I know a lot of you love to fish. Some of you are excellent fishermen and, and fisherwomen, I guess. I don't know. You go out there and you catch all kinds of fish, and no fish ever bought onto, bit onto a hook. Well, except maybe at Jimmy Hutto's place where those fish are in that pond. They'll maybe will just bite a hook by itself. But most people, when they go fishing, have to put something on that hook whether a worm or bread or something, to lure that fish into biting on the hook. Friends, here the picture is there is a seduction, there is a sweet flattery here from this woman. She says things to the man that make him feel important. She inflates his ego. She makes him feel powerful. Here called the immoral woman, that is the word in Hebrew, strange, indicating she is disordered, she is foreign, she is not walking in accordance with the roles God has given to her as wife and mother. In fact, she is seducing a man, not her husband, because immorality has to rely on seduction because it is inherently deceptive. Let me say that again. Immorality is inherently deceptive, so it must rely on seduction. It must rely on the lie of seduction. It presents one thing and delivers another. And if you see it for what it is, it takes away the seduction. If you see it for what it truly is, and so here he says that, that honestly, uh, this woman, her lips drip honey, her mouth is smoother than oil, she appears to be a good thing, it appears good, but it is not. In fact, it goes without saying that seduction could either go with a man seducing a woman or a woman seducing a man. The picture here is of the woman seducing the man, but it could go either way. If we keep going, we see not only the, um, we see not only, pardon me, the, um, let me see if I can get this to work. One second. I just had something. Give me one second. I don't know what just happened. Oh, okay, one second. I'm sorry. We're working with some technology problems today. Can we see that? The seduction of... Okay, good. Um, we keep going. Okay, here we are. Seduction of immorality is a second point. Oh, we just saw that. Now we go. There we go. Verse 4. <laughs> the deception of immorality, verses 4 through 6. We see seduction being deceptive. This is not saying that either men or women are more susceptible to this. Men commit immorality and women commit immorality. This is not a, only a male problem. This is a problem that goes both ways. Notice that the, the, the end of her, she speaks with, with honey and she speaks with oil, but read verse 4. In the end, she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of hell Lest you ponder her path of life, her ways are unstable, you do not know them. I want you to notice the difference here. He says at the start, there are short-term pleasures, oil and honey. But in the end, there's a sharp reversal, sharp as a sword. You know, um, in Hebrews chapter 11, the Bible tells us that Moses when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Sin is pleasurable in a passing, fleeting moment. And there is that initial pleasure, but it does not last because that pleasure is deceptive. In the midst of pleasure, in the midst of sin, it feels right, it is pleasurable, but it will not last. Notice the reversals from smooth to sharp, from a promise of life and pleasure to what? to absolute death and hell. Her steps are holding fast to the grave, to Sheol, to hell. She is unstable. You cannot know what she is doing. You might trick yourself and others into saying, I know what I'm doing. Have you heard people say that before? I know what I'm doing. You don't. 
You can't possibly know what you're doing because immorality cannot speak the truth. If it did, you would never be seduced by it. Look at verse 6. She doesn't want you to think about where this is going. She doesn't want you to think about her paths. Her ways are unstable. They are shifting. They're not something you can build your life on. Seduction and immorality is deceptive, and Satan is in his nature deceptive. John chapter 8 tells us, Jesus speaking, you are of your father, the devil, the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Uh, Seduction and immorality is based on the lie and is based on seduction, immorality. You must be in a battle against immorality. I began this with the battle against immorality because I'm convinced that we need to make sure we're in the battle, that we are fighting the battle, that we are in the game. The battle will not be one where you can stand aside. It will wage war against the men and women of God. You need to stand in the battle. The second point I want us to see starting in verse 7 is the strategy for short-term success. Now, here's the thing. With any battle, with any war, there are skirmishes, battles, and big wars. You have the big war that is a a series of skirmishes or battles, and 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 each individual battles are important, and they make up into, they they, they compound, they, they build up into the larger victories. You, you can't just have a long-term strategy without having a short-term strategy, and you can't just have a short-term strategy without having a long-term strategy. You need both. And so the Scripture here is interesting in that it gives us a strategy for handling and for fighting immorality, and I believe it divides it here into two different categories. First, the short-term strategy for success. First thing you have to do is you have to beware the danger of getting close to immorality. This is a short-term, immediate, right here and right now thing you can do to prevent yourself from falling into sin. Look at verse 7 and 8. Therefore, hear me now, my children. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. What's the command in verse 8? Remove your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Physical distance is your friend. You need to remember that you need to get away from immorality. There is the, the Patch the Pirate song of Joseph putting on his running shoes, mate, right? Put on your running shoes and don't stop to take a closer look. And as Joseph ran away from Potiphar's wife as she was tempting him, Joseph put on his running shoes and he got out of there, right? He ran away from temptation. And some people might say, well, that's, that's kind of a wimpy thing to do, to run away from temptation. Why didn't he face it like a man? You know the best way to face temptation like a man? run away. Get away from temptation. Get far from temptation. Get away from the door of her house. Don't go close by. Practice avoidance of sin and temptation. The wisest man is not the man who walks into a tempting situation and faces it. It's the man who sees a tempting situation and stays as far away as possible. That is the wise man. If you know there's going to be a temptation there, don't go. Why, Why do we see how close we can get? If you know, if you, if you are worried that you might sin, then don't. It's, it's, it's rather simple. He says we need to not go place the near, not, not go place near where temptation will be. In fact, this is throughout all the Scripture that, that the battle for, against immorality is not a hand-to-hand combat as much as it is running away from it. I want to show you another verse that points this out. I, I use this verse a lot. Folks, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Scripture tells us to flee also youthful lusts. 
Run away. Get away from it. You need to pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But you need to get away from that immorality. How, how, what is a practical way you can do this? Some of you have places that are tempting to you. And you drive by those places on your way home. And you have found yourself stopping by those places. And you have excused your behavior because you say things like, well, I just happened to be there and I couldn't help but turn in. Don't give yourself that excuse. If you know you're weak, change your route home. Why don't you do that? Obey the Scripture and stay far away from it. There are physical distances to things that you can establish. Will this solve your deepest heart's problem? No, but it is a good strategy for short-term success. This isn't the whole battle. This is the first step. You need to get away from it. Don't overestimate your ability to fight sexual sin. Don't overestimate your ability to fight against sexual sin. I think every single person in this room needs to understand that given the right circumstances and the right situation, you too could fall. You think, well, my, my, my marriage is great. I don't have any struggles like this. Beware lest you fall. Don't, don't ever think that you are beyond falling into sin. Secondly, he says, not only are we to be the, beware the danger of getting close to immorality, we also ought to beware the consequences of moral failure. Notice in verse 9, he gives several consequences to this kind of behavior, this moral failure. If you are near and fall with this woman, he says, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel one, lest aliens be filled with your wealth and your labors go to the house of a foreigner and you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed. The first big consequence is loss. What do you lose? You lose your honor. Your honor will be given to others. You will lose your dignity as a man, as a woman. And those of you who sadly have engaged in immorality in the past and have sought forgiveness from God, sometimes you still feel this in your bones and you know that it's true. Those of you who have not yet sinned in this way, recognize this as a strategy for avoiding sin and recognize that when you engage in immorality, there will be lost honor, there will be lost years. You will lose years of your life. And this is a couple different meanings. One, you could either be pursuing worthless things and waste your life, or your life could actually be shortened. Your years will be given to a cruel person. You will be given over to someone who does not care about your well-being. This cruel person will mercilessly and unrelentingly inflict pain on you. The cruel one in verse 9. What began as a quest for physical pleasure ends in a physical pain and physical loss. There's lost wealth. Aliens and foreigners, people who are not part of your family, will take profits you've earned with your labor. And there's all kinds of ways this happens in modern society, but this could even happen to you. And then notice there's lost health as well. You will mourn at the end, and your flesh and your body are consumed. You might be happy in the midst of sin when all said and done. You will be sad. And your body will actually pay the price. He says your body will be consumed or will decay. This is talking about disease. And there are certain diseases that follow the immoral. We've even seen in the news there recently there's an outbreak of immorally connect, diseases connected with immoral behavior. Friends, if you engage in immoral behavior, you might find yourself with diseases 
because of your immorality. Loss follows immorality. This ought to be a motivator to stay away. Number, number two, regret. Regret. And regret naturally follows loss. When you lose something, you regret having lost it. You will find yourself looking back at failure and wondering what might have been. Look at verse 12. You say to yourself, how I've hated instruction. My heart despised correction. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. You realize that, in all, that you have actually hated instruction. Your heart hated correction. You didn't obey anyone, and you're going to remember these words from Proverbs. You're going to remember these instructions, and even the, the message we're hearing this morning. How many of us haven't experienced regret at one point or another because of the folly of our sin. We, we do something foolish, we do something sinful, and we experience regret. He says you will experience un, unbelievable regret if you engage in this kind of immorality. You will also experience shame. At last, the consequence mentioned here is public shame. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. His exposure was to the assembly and in the congregation, a sin he believed was private, became public. Now, friends, a couple points as we wrap up this second point. What do you need to change about your life that's leading you to sin? Can you make some simple changes about where you go and what you do and who you're with that keep you from sin? Are you developing right relationships right now? Or are you developing relationships that could actually lead you towards sin? Like, you, you know in your mind that relationship you're, 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 you're developing with that person at work is probably not on the right path, and you need to stop that relationship before it goes any further. What kinds of things are you doing practically avoidance? And, and then also, we need to be aware of the consequences of the sin when it does come to call. We should not be surprised if we are to engage and jump into sin, if we are to engage in sin that we will experience loss, regret, and shame. But, you know, short-term victories is not what it's all about. We also have to project out and say, how can I sustain this? How can I have long-term victory in this area? Well, the Bible also gives us helps with that. Look at verse 15. We have a strategy for long-term victory. First, we fight temptation with God's blessings. He starts in verse 15 with this instruction. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them, be only for, let them be only your own and not for the strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice with the wife of your, 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 your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured by, with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of of a seductress. He says there are blessings, and the first blessing is your spouse. He gives a picture here, a kind of riddle. He says you're to drink water from your own personal well, your own personal cistern. It's a picture of satisfying your thirst, of filling a natural need, and God has provided that need, and you have a cistern, you have a well. God has provided for you a blessing for your fulfillment and a strategy for avoiding long-term lust that is your spouse. You should be enjoying the company and love of your spouse. And if you are not, you are setting yourself up for failure. We, we, we do a fair bit of marriage counseling, as I mentioned here before. My wife and I meet with people, and sometimes I meet with them. Um, and, and often, a, a, a consistent problem among married people is a lack of intimate closeness between a husband and wife. 
And friends, if you are, you are doing this, you aren't actually endangering your spiritual well-being by setting yourself up for failure. God says, drink water from your own cistern, because God's intention, verse 16 and 17, is that it is personal and private, that your relationship with your wife or your husband is a personal and private relationship here. He says, this is a, he says, look at the folly of taking your personal wealth and your water source and just scattering it in the street. Why should your fountains be dispersed in your streams of water in the streets? Like taking your personal well or cistern and just throwing it away to anyone who walks by. He says, no, this is something that God has given you for you and for your home, for your spouse. The gift of sex and marriage is a blessed and is personal and private. It's not to be shared with those outside of the marriage bond. That is God's intention because God's gift, verse 18, is marriage. Let the fountain be blessed Again, a metaphor here of the love between a husband and wife. It is a fountain of life. And he says the man is called to rejoice with his wife of his youth. This is giving the indication this man is no longer young. He is looking at his wife who used to be young, and now he is the wife of his youth, and now she is older with him, and he is rejoicing in that wife. He is to consider her like a loving deer and like a graceful doe. You are to uphold your wife's beauty. You are to rejoice in the gift of marriage. Husbands, you must love your wives. You must be satisfied with your wives, and you should be enraptured by your wives. There's nothing to be ashamed of. That's something to rejoice in. God has given you that as a gift. Praise the Lord. In fact, that's how one of the ways you fight long-term success, you get long-term success in this fight against immorality because man's folly, look at verse 20, the immorality here is so foolish. Why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman? What sense does that make? Why would you allow yourself to be captured by an immoral woman who does not love you, whom God has not given to you? How foolish. Immorality is always foolish. Immorality is always stupid. God's plan is marriage, and marriage is good. A few verses here I read at the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, that God designed marriage. God's plan was marriage. God's plan was a relationship between husband and wife. The Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. And every man said, amen. It's not good for men to be alone. It's good for a man to have a helper. So God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. He slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh, and the rib that God took from the man he made into a woman, brought her to the man, and Adam said, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She and I belong together. She shall be called woman. She was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, one flesh, incomplete without each other. They are united and there's a vulnerability and a transparency here, even in the garden. They were naked and unashamed. They were completely vulnerable, completely transparent with one another. And this is all before sin. God made husband and wife relationship before sin. Many Christians don't talk about marriage relations because they think of it as dirty or embarrassing. But God does not think this way about sexual relations. It was God's idea, God's perspective. So he has given this as a blessing. He treats marriage so seriously that those who defile it will be dealt with. Hebrews chapter 13, marriage is honorable among all in the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. There's something to remember too in all this talk. Some of you are thinking to yourself, yeah, Pastor Marshall, but what about me? I'm single. It doesn't apply to me. You know, God actually deals with this in several places in the Bible. In, 
not everyone is intended to be married. You know, the Scriptures clearly teaches us that some are given to celibacy or singleness as a gift. 1 Corinthians 7 deals with this issue at length. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 7, 8, that if you can remain single and pure, you ought to, because it's you don't have to worry as much about things of life. You can serve the Lord more freely as a single person than you can as a married person, but that God has given marriage to help. So you ought to understand that God has a plan for you even if you are single. That does not mean you are second class or anything like that. But God has given here clearly in this passage in Proverbs chapter 5, the first way to fight the temptation with God's blessings by embracing God's gift. Secondly, we should fight temptation with God's accountability. Fight temptation with God's accountability, verse 21, for the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all his paths. His own iniquities entrap the wicked, and he is caught in the cords of his sin. He shall die for lack of instruction in the greatness of his folly. He shall go astray. You know, God sees what you do. He ponders your path God knows what happens in the secret places. God sees. The ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord. Your ways, your road is before God's eyes. God thinks about what you're doing. That God ponders your paths. I went forward to Proverbs 15.3. says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. God keeps watch on everything. So God's accountability ought to be there. You ought to remember God's accountability in your life. This is a long-term strategy for fighting sin, and God will allow you to experience consequences of your own decisions. Look at verse 22. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man. He is caught in the cords of his sin. He shall die for lack of instruction. In the greatness of his folly, he shall go astray. Sin leads to death. If you are engaging in sin and you don't repent, friend, you are headed one direction. It is not a pleasant place to be. Death is here in the big scheme. It is here because we sinned, because Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Yes. But your pursuit of sin will only lead towards more death and more destruction. This has been a very difficult message in some ways in that we're talking a lot about bad news. And the bad news is this. You're a sinner who will experience the wrath of God unless you experience the salvation of God. There's the bad news and the good news. And, and, and without Christ, there is absolutely no hope to this point. If you are in the fight for your life, but without Christ, you will lose that fight. And, and in God's wrath, God's anger is righteously exercised against those who have sinned against him and violated his law. But God did not leave us without hope. I'm going to point you to a couple of verses here that stirred me as I was studying this passage. Galatians chapter 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Christ came into the world to save sinners, and there's abundant life given to us in Christ. Christ says, the thief comes to destroy and to steal. I have come that they may have what? Life, and they may have it more abundantly. This kind of sin leads to death. What is Christ offering us? Life. Friend, friend we have to recognize this is a bite for your life. This is a real fight, and if you are in Christ, you have redemption, and through Christ, you can be forgiven of all your sin. In 1 John 1, 9, this is a passage every Christian ought to have memorized and ought to practice on a regular basis. If we confess our sins, 
He, God, is faithful and just to do what? Do you realize there's no sin that God cannot forgive you today if you ask him? If you come to God, this is a promise God gives. If you come to him and say, Lord, forgive me for this sin. You say, I feel like I failed so much, God will never forgive me. You are believing a lie if you believe that because God has made a promise that he will forgive you your sins and cleanse you. He will cleanse you. He will clean you. Sin has a staining effect. Sin has a staining effect on the person who commits the sin. And if you feel dirty, you feel wrong, and God says, I will clean you up, that's my promise. Friend, would you throw yourself at Jesus' feet? Would you throw yourself at the foot of the cross? For the Christian, I have just one command, that is to fight the battle, the whole armor of God, as we read in our Scripture reading this morning. You want to equip yourself with the armor of God so you can stand up against the tricks of the devil, and your heart must be caught up in the beauty of God so that the beauty of sensual, sensual and sexual temptations lose their luster. You need to be caught in the beauty of our Lord. Recognize who we're worshiping. Behold your God, the Scripture tells us. But if you fail, forgiveness is always offered. For those of you who are not in Christ, for those of you who are not saved and you've never trusted Christ and you stand condemned in your sins and you hear a message like this, you say, wow, I've committed so much of that sin. I have so many, I have a trail behind me, a wake of destruction. I've tried to forget, but if I was honest and turned around and saw the sins of my life, I would have to account, and I'd have to own all those sins. I'd, yep, that's all mine. And there's no hope in that because your sins bring death. But guess what? Christ died to save you from that sin. He died to pay the penalty for that sin. He died on the cross, taking your sin upon himself. He paid that penalty. He gave you his righteousness so that his imputed righteousness to your account means you have eternal life in Christ, even if you are a sinner, because you are a sinner. There are, the righteous do not need a physician. The well do not need a physician, but the sick do. Friend, you're already sick. Do you realize it? Those of you who have already trusted Christ, you know that this does not mean that all of a sudden you never sin again. This means that you have to fight against sin, fight against immorality, fight against these things with everything you have. It's the fight for your life. Would you be willing to step up to the plate and make this a real fight in your life? If you say, this isn't a big deal to me, friend, I worry for you. If you dismiss this, no one can dismiss this. Please don't dismiss this. This is a real battle all of us must face. Would you be willing to take this fight and really fight it for God's glory? Father, we ask today that you'd help us as we settle our hearts now and think about what you called us to do to fight against sin and against immorality by fleeing it, by having a strategy short-term, long-term for how to have success. You'd help us to be obedient to you, Lord, in all things that we would admit where we have failed in the past, confess that, but Lord, pursue you with our whole heart, knowing that you give us everything we need for life and godliness in your word. If we approach you, Lord, like you ask us to, we can find success in walking with you because of the cross of Christ and because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Lord, as we think about the cross and Christ's death on the cross, we think about his suffering for our sin. It seems unbelievable, it seems insurmountable that the Christ, the one who created all things, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross, so that we might receive forgiveness. 
Lord, we're so overwhelmed that you would devote such a sacred head for someone like us. We look at you and we see a Lord, and we're overwhelmed with the beauty of the cross, with the beauty of your salvation. And so, Father, I pray that today we would be committing ourselves, even now, Lord, we would commit our hearts to standing true and standing firm against any kind of temptation that would come this way. Every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm making a commitment. Lord, I am, I am going to be serious about walking with you and about fighting this fight. This is a fight for my life. I'm going to uh, take this wisdom from above and apply it to my life this week. There may be things that are very obvious for you. We might have to make some serious decisions this week. Uh, some changes need to be made, some relationships that need to be dealt with, some sin that needs to be confessed. You need to go. If you've sinned against someone they don't know, you need to go to them and ask them to forgive you. Things like that need to be cleaned up. Some of you, are, are, there are some longer-range problems you need to address. Your devotional life is a wreck. You have not been spending time with the Lord. You have not been, your relationship with your spouse is a disaster. You have not been uh, emotionally or uh, relationally available to your spouse. You've been separate. You have been wandering away, and, and you're very close to immorality. Whatever the case is, friend, would you conf- ask the Lord to give you strength to do that this week, to obey Him, to take the steps you need to take so that you can please the Lord with the way you live your life, living in wisdom. Father, I ask for these Christians that they would trust you with everything they have, that they would be willing to obey you even in the hard things, and that as we live our life this week, we might see your way and your word working in and among us. In Jesus' name, amen.